Section 10 No Self versus True Self This is one of those questions that tends to arise when Hinduism or Christianity come in contact with Buddhism. However, perhaps it should arise more when Buddhism is thinking about itself. I include this discussion here because it addresses some points that are useful for later and previous discussions. True self and no self are actually talking about the same thing, just from different perspectives. Each can be useful, but each is an extreme. Truly, the truth is a middle way between these and is indescribable, but I will try to explain it anyway in the hope that it may support actual practice. It may seem odd to put a chapter that deals with the fruits of insight practices in the middle of descriptions of the Samantha Janus, but hopefully when you listen to the next chapter, you will understand why it falls where it does. For all of you intellectuals out there, the way in which this chapter is most likely to support practice is to be completely incomprehensible and thus useless. Ironically, I have tried to make this chapter very clear and in doing so have crafted a mess of paradoxes. In one of his plays, Shakespeare puts philosophers on par with lawyers. In terms of insight practice, a lawyer who is terrible at insight practices but who tries to do them anyway is vastly superior to a world-class philosopher who is merely an intellectual master of this theory but practices not at all. Remember that spiritual life is something you do and hopefully understand, but not some doctrine to believe. Those of you who are interested in the formal Buddhist dogmatic anti-dogma should check out the particularly profound Sutta One, the root of all things, in the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, as well as Sutta One, the supreme net, what the teaching is not, in the long discourses of Buddha. Again, Realize that all of this language is basically useless in the end and prone to not making much sense. Only examination of our reality will help us to actually directly understand this. But it will not be in a way accessible to the rational mind. Nothing in the content of our thoughts can really explain the experience of the understanding I'm about to point to, though there is something in the direct experience of those thoughts that might reveal it. Everything that I am about to try to explain here can become a great entangling net of useless views without direct insight. Many of the juvenile and tedious disputes between the various insight traditions result from fixation on these concepts and inappropriate adherence to only one side of these apparent paradoxes. Not surprisingly, these disputes between insight traditions generally arise from those with little or no insight. One clear mark of the development of true insight is that these paradoxes lose their power to confuse and obscure. They become tools for balanced inquiry and instruction, beautiful poetry, imitations of the heart of the spiritual life, and of one's own direct and non-conceptual experience of it. No self-teachings directly counter the sense that there is a separate watcher, and that this watcher is an I that is in control observing reality or subject to the tribulations of the world. Truly, this is a useful illusion to counter. However, if misunderstood, this teaching can produce a shadow side that reeks of nihilism, disengagement with life and denial. People can get all fixated on eliminating a self when the emphasis is supposed to be on the words separate and permanent, as well as on the illusion that is being created. 
A better way to say this would be stopping the process of mentally creating the illusion of a separate self from sensations that are inherently non-dual, utterly transient and thus empty of any separate, permanent self. Even if you get extremely enlightened, you will still be here from a conventional point of view, but you will also be just an interdependent and intimate part of this utterly transient universe, just as you actually always have been. A huge and yet subtle difference is that this will be known directly and clearly. The language eliminating your ego is similarly misunderstood most of the time. You see, there are physical phenomena and mental phenomena, as well as the consciousness or mental echo of these, which is also in the category of mental phenomena. These are just phenomena, and all phenomena are not a permanent separate self, as they all change and are ultimately interdependent. They are simply aware, as in manifest, where they are without any observer of them at all. The boundaries that seem to differentiate self from not-self are arbitrary and conceptual, such as not the true nature of things. Said another way, reality is intimately interdependent and non-dual, like a great ocean. There is also awareness, but awareness is not a thing or localized in a particular place. So to even say, there is also awareness, is already a tremendous problem, as it implies separateness and existence where none can be found. To be really philosophically correct about it, borrowing heavily from Nagarjuna, awareness cannot be said to fit any of the following descriptions. That it exists, that it does not exist, that it both exists and does not exist, that it neither exists nor doesn't exist, just so, in truth, it cannot be said that we are awareness, that we are not awareness, that we are both awareness and not awareness, or even that we are neither awareness nor not awareness. We could go through the same pattern with whether or not phenomena are intrinsically luminous. For the sake of discussion and in keeping with the standard Buddhist thought, awareness is permanent and unchanging. It is also said that all things arise from it, and all things return to it. Though again, this implies a false certainty about something which is actually impenetrably mysterious and mixing the concept of infinite potential with awareness is a notoriously dangerous business. We could call it God, Nirvana, the Tao, the Void, Allah, Krishna, intrinsic luminosity, Buddha nature, Buddha, Baba, or just awareness, as long as we realize the above caveats, especially that it is not a thing or localized in any particular place and has no definable qualities. Awareness is sometimes conceptualized as pervading all of this while not being all of this, and sometimes conceptualized as being inherent in all of this while not being anything in particular. Neither is quite true, though both perspectives can be useful. If you find yourself adopting any fixed idea about what we are calling awareness here, try also adopting its logical opposite to try to achieve some sense of direct inquisitive paradoxical imbalance that shakes fixed views about this stuff and points to something beyond these limited concepts. This is incredibly useful advice for dealing with all teachings about ultimate reality. I would also recommend looking into the true nature of the sensations that make up philosophical speculation and all sensations of questioning. 
While phenomena are in flux from their arising to their passing, there is awareness of them. Thus awareness is not these objects, as it is not a thing, nor is it separate from these objects, as there would be no experience if this were so. By determining our reality just as it is, we may come to understand this. Further, phenomena do not exist in the sense of abiding in a fixed way for any length of time, and thus are utterly transitory, and yet the laws that govern the functioning of this utter transience hold. That phenomena do not exist does not mean that there is not a reality, but that this reality is completely inconstant, except for awareness, which is not a thing. This makes no sense to the rational mind, but that is how it is with this stuff. One teaching that comes out of the Theravada that can be helpful is that there are three ultimate dharmas, or ultimate aspects of reality. Materiality, the sensations of the first five sense doors. Mentality, all mental sensations. And nirvana, though they would call it nibbana, which is the Pali equivalent of the Sanskrit. In short, this is actually it. And that, which is beyond this, is also it. Notice that awareness is definitely not on this list. It might be conceptualized as being all three, from a true self point of view, or quickly disregarded as being a useless concept that solidifies a sense of separate or localized watcher, from the no-self point of view. Buddhism also contains a strangely large number of true self-teachings, though if you told most Buddhists this, they would give you a good scolding. Many of these have their origins in Hindu Vedanta and Hindu Tantra. All the talk of Buddha nature, the Bodhisattva vow, and that sort of thing are true self-teachings. True self-teachings point out that this awareness is who we are, but it isn't a thing, so it is not self. They also point out that we actually are all these phenomena, rather than all these phenomena being seen as something observed and thus not self, which they are also as they are utterly transit and not awareness. This teaching can help practitioners actually examine their reality just as it is and sort of inhabit it in an honest and realistic way, or it can cause them to cling to things as self if they misunderstand this teaching. I will try again. You see, as all phenomena are observed, they cannot possibly be the observer. Thus, the observer, which is awareness and not any of the phenomena pretending to be it, cannot possibly be a phenomenon, and thus is not localized and doesn't exist. This is no self. However, all of these phenomena are actually us from the point of view of non-duality and interconnectedness, as the illusion of duality is just an illusion. When the illusion of duality permanently collapses in final awakening, all that is left is all of these phenomena, which is true self, such as the lack of a separate self and thus just all of this as it is. Remember, however, that no phenomena abide for even an instant and are so empty of permanent abiding and thus of stable existence. This all brings me to one of my favorite words, non-dual a word that means both duality and unity fail to clearly describe ultimate reality. As awareness is in some way separate from and unaffected by phenomena, we can say that that unity is the true answer. Unitive experiences arise out of strong concentration and can easily fool people into thinking they are the final answer. They are not. 
That said, it is because awareness is not a phenomena, thing or localized in any place that you can say that duality is true. A duality implies something on both sides, an observer and an observed. However, there is no phenomenal observer, so duality does not hold up under careful investigation. Until we have a lot of fundamental insight, the sense that duality is true can be very compelling and can cause all sorts of trouble. We extrapolate false dualities from sensations until we are very highly enlightened. Thus, the word non-dual is an inherently paradoxical term, one that confounds reason and even our current experience of reality. If we accept the working hypothesis that non-duality is true, then we will be able to continue to reject both unitive and dualistic experiences as the true answer and continue to work towards awakening. This is probably the most practical application of discussions of no-self and true-self. No-self and true-self are really just two sides of the same coin. There is a great little poem by one Kalu Rimpush that goes something like, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. There are many fine poems on similar things presented in Soigal Rinpoche's The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. It is because we are none of this that freedom is possible. It is because we are all of this that compassionate action for all beings and ourselves is so important. To truly understand this moment is to truly understand both, which is the middle way between these two extremes. Sinisar Gadatas, I am that, for a very down-to-earth discussion of these issues. While only insight practices will accomplish this, there are some concentration attainments, the last four jhanas or formless realms, that can really help put things in proper perspective, though they do not directly cause deep insights and awakening unless the true nature of the sensations that make them up is understood. The Formless Realms the formless realms never fail to impress and amaze. They can also be taken to be much more significant than they really are. The trick is to come into a balanced understanding of what they are and what they aren't, what they are useful for and what they do not accomplish. This is not always easy. Boundless Space, the fifth jhana. To attain this state, one simply continues to cultivate the fourth jhana, and begins not to pay attention to the objects in the meditation space, but gently to space itself. How big is reality? Turning into the panoramic quality of attention itself, when the fourth jhana can be very helpful. This is quite a fine line, but it can definitely be done. Forms then slip away like ghosts into thin air, and the mind turns to boundless space, the fifth jhana, as the object of concentration. This jhana is often called infinite space, as the next one is often called infinite consciousness. But I prefer the word boundless because it is much closer to the actual experience of these stages. People imagine that they might simultaneously perceive the whole of space, but what actually happens is that the perceptual boundaries drop away and a very unitive openness prevails. This open quality itself becomes the primary focus rather than what is unified in that openness. This aspect was already present in the fourth jhana, but now it comes to the fore. The same is true of the next formless realm. 
This is not necessarily as perfectly clean as it sounds, depending on how solidly one is in this state, but it still is quite spectacular. When this state is really cultivated, all or most images and sense of body are gone, and almost all of what is left is vastness. There is still thought and the illusion of a separate self, for example duality, but the mind is extremely quiet and the duality subtle. The equanimity from the fourth jhana remains, as the formless realms use this state as their foundation. Sounds might still be noticeable depending on the depth of the state. Note that if one attains this state while meditating with the eyes open, it may have a very different quality to it than if the eyes are closed. From this state, the meditator has a few options. They can get stuck, which may be more likely if they are incorrectly practicing non-dual formless practices such as Dzogchen, by fixating too much on the phrase space-like awareness. They can also either go on to the next formless realm, boundless consciousness, or investigate this state and thus begin the progress of insight. If this last option is chosen, special care and extreme precision must be given to each and every instant that the many sensations make up the perception of space. Silence or equanimity are perceived so as to see each of these experiences arise and pass completely in each instant, not satisfy and not be self. It may seem odd to think of sensations of space arising and passing away each instant, but space is a conditioned aspect of relative reality and is thus impermanent like all other aspects of experiential reality. This can be an important attainment, as it clarifies that awareness, that non-thing that is often described as space-like, is actually not even space, though it is not separate from space, as in the chapter No Self versus True Self. There are few things quite as odd, profound, and possibly disconcerting as investigating the first three formless realms and perceiving them strobe in and out of existence. But this is powerful practice and a very valuable and high attainment. Again, this state may be left and insight practices begun with the benefits of the residue of this state calming, opening, and stabilizing the mind for a short time after it ends. Boundless Consciousness, the Sixth Jhana. If the meditator wishes to go further into the formless realms, then they should continue to cultivate attention to boundless space and begin to notice that they are conscious of all of it, and thus space is filled with consciousness. At some point the mind will abandon boundless space and shift to perceiving boundless consciousness, the Sixth Jhana. This can feel outrageously unitive, as consciousness seems to fill the whole universe. Space becomes luminous, and this can be confused with descriptions of the fundamental luminosity of awareness and with non-duality, though this is definitely not the attainment of the understanding of those. Again, equanimity prevails. This state has a sense of presence to it that boundless space doesn't. It is also a great staging ground for exploration of the psychic powers. From here, the meditator has various options. They can get stuck, which can happen fairly easily if they are mistaking Dzogchen or other non-dual formless practices for meditation on the concentration object of boundless consciousness, again due to misunderstanding or overemphasizing the phrase space-like awareness. They can also go on to cultivate the next formless realm, nothingness. Or they can investigate boundless consciousness and then begin the progress of insight. 
For this last option, extremely careful attention must be given to each moment that the sensations make up the perceptions of consciousness, vastness or equanimity arise and pass away. Great precision must be given to the fact that these sensations do not satisfy and cannot be self or imply a separate self. Because of how fundamentally disconcerting or unsatisfactory it can be to have the three illusions shattered at this level of clarity and simplicity, this is not an easy practice, but it can be very powerful. It is actually much more likely that such insights into the true nature of the first three formless realms will arise spontaneously due to previous skillful insight practices. Again, experiencing boundless consciousness strobing in and out of reality can be profoundly helpful in convincing us that even boundless consciousness that fills the vastness of space is not awareness, though awareness cannot be said to be separate from consciousness. What is observing boundless consciousness strobe in and out of reality? Now there's a question, perhaps the question. Nothingness, the seventh jhana. If the meditator wishes to attain the next formless realm, that of nothingness, they simply cultivate the jhana of boundless consciousness and disenchant themselves with the vastness and luminosity of that state. Eventually, the mind will abandon these and shift to the jhana of nothingness. To imagine this state, imagine space with all of the lights completely out, so that there is no vastness and almost no sensations other than those of nothingness. It is almost as though attention is out of phase with nearly all phenomena except those that imply nothingness. They are still there somewhere, but they are not being attended to. This jhana is different from the previous two formless realms in that they are quite present to reality in some way and panoramic in perspective, where nothingness is more turned away from phenomena and perhaps more focused in some way. There is, however, some very subtle thought and some extremely subtle sense of a separate self. Note well, nothingness is absolutely not emptiness, though it is empty, but this is not the attainment of this understanding. However, one can easily be convinced that this is emptiness due to the extreme profundity of it. As before, this jhana can have different degrees of intensity to it. Even when one is not strongly in it, there is a sense of being out of phase with reality, like being disassociated. Reality is there, but you have tuned it out on your radio. Note well, this is very different from just being tuned out in the colloquial sense. While equanimity prevails, this state can be a bit scary at first, and this can cause some instability of this state. Now even consciousness and space are basically gone. However, there is still awareness of this state, indicating that there can be awareness that is not particularly consciousness or space. This really helps debunk the sense that awareness is consciousness or space or even a thing, that we are our body, etc. That said, it is not nothingness either. Nothingness may be perceived, whereas awareness may not. From this state, the mind may get stuck, but this is not quite as likely as with the first two formless states, as this state is quite refined, but not as breathtaking as the first two in some ways. The meditator may then try to move to the next jhana, or may investigate this state. It may seem incredible that the sensations of nothingness itself could be observed to arise and pass, strobe in and out of reality, or that they could be known to not satisfy or not be self. However, 
This is definitely possible, if potentially quite disconcerting, due to its extreme profundity and ability to really kick some sense into the mind about the truth of things. It also helps debunk the false idea that the void, or awareness, is nothingness. It is not even this. Remember, no sensation can observe another. So anything you can think of cannot be said to be awareness. By simply paying close attention to every instant that nothingness or equanimity is perceived, and with precise attention to the exact arising and passing of each of these, that these transient moments do not satisfy, and that these neither can impute nor can be a separate self, the three illusions can begin to be penetrated in the highest state in which this can be accomplished. As this is a particularly subtle business, the meditator may also leave the jhana and begin insight practice in the afterglow of this state as before. Strobing sensations of nothingness are more likely to arise during the progress of insight in the stage called high equanimity for those with very strong concentration skills. Neither perception nor yet non-perception, the eighth jhana. If the meditator wishes to attain the next jhana, they simply hang out in nothingness until they get bored with perception entirely and understand that even perception is somehow disconcerting. Thus the mind will eventually shift on its own to the state with the perplexing but thoroughly appropriate title of neither perception nor yet non-perception, hereafter the eighth jhana, for the sake of brevity. This state is largely incomprehensible, but it is absolutely not emptiness. It is empty, but this is not the attainment of that understanding. The eighth jhana may very easily be confused as being emptiness, especially if it is attained through insight practices. Remember that insight practices can simultaneously cultivate concentration and wisdom. There is no reasonable way to attempt to describe this state, save for that it is a mind state, and thus is not emptiness, as emptiness is not a mind state or anything else for that matter. I am tempted to say that one is simultaneously focused so narrowly that one notices nothing, and yet so broadly that one doesn't notice even that. But such a description doesn't quite do this state justice. One way or the other, there is complete inattention to diversity. The eighth jhana is the highest of the states of concentration that can be attained, ignoring the attainment of the cessation of perception and feeling. It is not possible to investigate this state, as it is too incomprehensible. Thus, as this state ends, the meditator may return to lower states or turn to insight practice in the afterglow of this state. It should also be noted that, in contrast to the previous seven jhanas, the issue of hard or soft jhana that relates to how solidly one is in a state does not apply to the eighth jhana. You are either in it or you are not. The eighth jhana may have a certain stability that nothingness doesn't, due to the inability to make sense of it. Thus, the mind may move fairly quickly from boundless consciousness through nothingness and drop into the eighth jhana for a while, though the vaguest hint of attention to anything specific demolishes this state instantly. It is also possible to sort of drift up and down through the various formless realms, and shifting back down to the lower Johannes, after being up in the higher Johannes, such as this one, can lend a great deal of intensity to them. There are some higher Johannes that can be attained by beings with moderate to high levels of realization, and I will discuss these in the appendix. 
but for the moment and for most people the listing of the eighth Johannes is a good working model. The eighth Johannes can be sorted out from the attainment of emptiness by the number of signs having to do with the way the entrance to the state presents itself, such as not being one of the three doors, and thus not relating to the rapid and clear presentation of one of the three characteristics three or four times in quick succession. What may come before this, for example the stages of insight, and the fact that there is still some subtle sense of a state and thus relative reality. Just to drive this point home, an important feature of concentration practices is that they are not liberating in and of themselves, even the highest of these states ends. The afterglow from them does not last that long, and regular reality might even seem like a bit of an assault when it is gone. However, Jahana junkies still abound, and many have no idea that this is what they have become. I have a good friend who has been lost in the formless realms for over twenty years, attaining them again and again in his practice, rationalizing that he is doing Dzogchen practice, a type of insight practice, when he is just sitting between the fourth and sixth Johannes, rationalizing that the last two formless realms are emptiness, and rationalizing that he is enlightened. It is a true Dharma tragedy. Unfortunately, as another good friend of mine rightly pointed out, it is very hard to reach such people after a while. They get tangled in golden chains so beautiful that they have no idea they are even in prison, nor do they tend to take kindly to suggestions that this may be so, particularly if their identity has become so bound up in their false notion that they are a realized being. Chronic Jahana junkies are fairly easy to identify, even though they often imagine that they are not. I have no problem with people becoming Jahana junkies, as we are all presumably able to take responsibility for our choices in life. However, when people don't realize that this is what they have become and pretend that what they are doing has something to do with insight practices, that's annoying and sad. Try to differentiate clearly between concentration practice and insight practice. I will now give a detailed description of the stages of insight so that the contrast will be clear as possible. Pay careful attention to how different these descriptions are from those of the pure concentration states. The Progress of Insight The progress of insight is a set of stages that diligent meditators pass through on the path of insight. Some of the content-based or psychological insights into ourselves can be interesting and helpful. But when I say insight, these stages are what I'm talking about. Names of stages of insight in order are 1. Mind and Body 2. Cause and Effect 3. The Three Characteristics These are found in the first jahana. 4. Arising and Passing Away The second jahana. 5. Dissolution the foregoing are the pre-vipassana stages. 6. Fear. 7. Misery. 8. Disgust. 9. Desire for deliverance. 10. Reobservation. These are the dark night and the third jahana. In the dark night and the fourth jahana are 11. Equanimity. 12. Conformity. 13. Change of lineage. 14. Path. In Nirvana and also part of the fourth jhana are 15. Fruition, 16. Review I will give detailed descriptions of them shortly. I will refer to these stages by their shortened titles, their numbers, and occasionally shorthand slang. 
These are formally known as knowledge of, and then the stage, such as knowledge of mind and body, but I will just use the part after the of. They are also called jnanas, which means knowledges, usually with a number, as in the first jnana. Notice that I used the word stage rather than state. These are stages of heightened perception into the truth of things, opportunities to see directly how things actually are, but they are not seemingly stable states as with concentration practice. The jhanic groupings refer to the vipassana jhanas, which will be covered in more depth later, but they borrow their perspectives and certain fundamental aspects from their samantha jhana equivalents. In other ways, they may diverge widely from the experience of pure samantha jhanas. One of the most profound things about these stages is that they are strangely predictable regardless of the practitioner or the insight tradition. Texts 2,000 years old describe the stages just the way people go through them today, though there will be some individual variation on some of the particulars today as then. The Christian maps, the Sufi maps, the Buddhist maps of the Tibetans and the Theravada, and the maps of the Kabbalists and Hindus are all remarkably consistent in their fundamentals. I chanced into these classic experiences before I had any training in meditation, and I have met a large number of people who have done likewise. These maps, Buddhist or otherwise, are talking about something inherent in how our minds progress in fundamental wisdom that has little to do with any tradition and lots to do with the mysteries of the human mind and body. These are describing basic human development. These stages are not Buddhist but universal, and Buddhism is merely one of the traditions that describes them, albeit unusually well. The progress of insight is discussed in a good number of books, such as Jack Cornfield's A Path with Heart, in the section called Dissolving the Self, which I highly recommend. A very extensive, thorough, accessible, and highly recommended treatment of it is given in Mahashi Sayada's works The Progress of Insight and Practical Insight Meditation, a partially castrated version of which appears in Jack Cornfield's Living Dharma. It should be noted here that Practical Insight Meditation is my favorite Dharma book of all time, with no close competitors. If you can ever lay your hands on a copy, do so. Even the section of it that appears in Living Dharma is much better than having access to none of it at all. Sayada Upanditas in this very life also covers this territory and is a bit of a must-have for those who like lists and straight-up Theravada, but he leaves out a lot of juicy details. The Visuddhimagga, a 5th century text by Buddhaghosa, also does a nice treatment of these stages and contains some interesting and hard-to-find information. It focuses largely on the emotional side effects and thus misses many useful points. Another good but brief map appears in Venkempo Karthar's Renpusha's Dharma Paths. You could also check out Bhante Gunaratana's The Path of Serenity and Insight if you would like to know the dogma as well. It is a thorough and scholarly work. Matthew Flickenstein's Swallowing the River Ganges is a light treatment of the basic Buddhist concepts and contains a very superficial treatment of the stages of insight. It's kind of like what would happen if you condensed a medical school textbook down to a fifth-grade science text. It focuses almost entirely on the emotional side effects and thus misses a huge amount that is worthy of discussion. But it comes from a good place and is harmless enough. 
It doesn't add anything to the above sources, but is easy to read. There are many less accessible maps of insight as well. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, Liberation Through Hearing in the Bardo, requires some prior familiarity with this territory to sort out the wild symbolic imagery. A 12th century Sufi map is given in Journey to the Lord of Power by Ibn Arabi, but again, the medieval symbolism is somewhat hard to untangle unless you are already personally familiar with these stages. It also provides a very interesting, if quite cryptic, description of the higher stages of realization. St. John of the Cross, the Dark Knight of the Soul, does a good job of dealing with the most difficult of the insight stages. His map is called the Ladder of Love. Unfortunately, the translation of the medieval Spanish and thickness of complex Catholic dogma make it fairly inaccessible. I strongly recommend that you consult some of these other sources, particularly the first five mentioned. While I consider the treatment of the stages of insight that follow shortly to be by far the most comprehensive and practical explanation of the stages of insight ever written, and I mean that honestly, there are still lots of great points made in those books, and you should check them out. There is a huge amount of valuable information left out in all of these sources, perhaps due to the mushroom factor, but perhaps due also to some of the difficulties in describing all the little nuances of the subject in all its possible variations. Thus, working with a teacher who has a personal mastery of these stages, regardless of what they call them, is an extremely good idea most of the time. The model terminology I'm using is from the ancient commentaries from the Pali Canon of the Theravada tradition. This model is used mostly in Burma, but is also used to some degree in the other Theravada traditions. Zen is quite aware of these stages, as all Zen masters had to go through them and continue to do so, but they tend not to name them or talk about them, as is their typical style. This can be helpful, as people can get all obsessed with these maps, turning them into a new form of useless content and a source of imprisoning identification and competition. This is the ugly shadow side of goal-oriented or map-based practice, but it often, though not always, may be overcome with honest awareness of this fact. That said, Zen's persistent lack of attention to them can cause other problems, and some balance between intentionally ignoring them and obsessing over them works better than either extreme. Luckily, if the meditator really is into insight territory, continued correct practice has a way of making things happen given time. Also, when the proverbial stuff is hitting the fan, having a map around can really help the meditator not to make too many of the common and tempting mistakes of that stage, as well as provide the meditator with faith that they are on the right track when they hit the hard or weird stages. These stages can significantly color or skew a meditator's view of their life until they master them, and it can be very helpful to remember this when trying to navigate this territory and keep one's job and relationships functioning. Those who do not have the benefit of the maps in these situations, or those who choose to ignore them, are much more easily blindsided by the psychological extremes and challenges, which may sometimes accompany stages such as the arising and the passing away, and those of the dark night. While many people don't want to know the maps for various reasons, such as their own unexamined insecurities, I suspect that many more people could get a lot farther in their practice if they did know them. 
at the very least the maps clearly demonstrate that there is vastly more to all of this than just philosophy or psychology they also clearly and unambiguously point to how the game is played step by step and stage by stage what one is looking for and more importantly why and give guidelines for how to avoid screwing up along the way why people wouldn't want to know these things is completely beyond me they fill in the juicy details of the seemingly vast gap from doing some seemingly boring and simple practice to getting enlightened further providing all of this extremely precise information on exactly what to do puts the responsibility for progress or lack thereof clearly on the meditator you which is exactly where it should be if after reading this book you don't put this extremely powerful information into practice the fault is your own there is considerable evidence that lack of this information in insight traditions that don't use the maps has been one of the primary obstacles to progress on the other hand the maps can sometimes cause furious competition and arrogance in the traditions that do use them as well as harmful fixation on purely future-oriented goals please do your very best to avoid these sorts of problems the more intense consistent and precise the practice the easier it is to see how the maps apply the more energy focus and consistency is put into practice the more dramatic and even outrageous these stages can be if these stages unfold over long periods of time and gently it can be more difficult to see the progression through them though it does happen regardless certain emphasis in practice such as mahasi sayadaw style noting practice particularly on intensive retreats seem to produce a clearer appreciation of the maps and some individuals will have an easier time seeing how these maps apply than others will each stage is marked by very specific increases in our perceptual abilities the basic areas we can improve are in clarity precision speed consistency inclusiveness and acceptance it is these improvements in our perceptual abilities that are the hallmarks of each stage and the gold standard by which they are defined and known each stage also tends to bring up mental and physical raptures unusual manifestations these are fairly predictable at each stage and sometimes very unique to each stage they are secondary to the increase in perceptual thresholds of ways by which we may judge whether or not we are in a particular stage each stage also tends to bring up specific aspects of our emotional and psychological makeup these are also strangely predictable but these are not as reliable for determining which stage is occurring they are suggestible ordinary and will show more variation from person to person however when used in conjunction with the changes in perceptual threshold and the raptures they can help us get a clearer sense of which stage has been attained further these stages occur in a very predictable order and so looking for a pattern of stages leading one to the next can help us get a sense of what is going on thus when reading my descriptions of these stages pay attention to these separate aspects the shift in perceptual threshold the physical and mental raptures the emotional and psychological tendencies and the overall pattern of how that stage fits with the rest so the meditator sits down or lies down stands etc and begins to try to experience each and every sensation clearly as it is 
When the meditator gains enough concentration to steady the mind on the object of meditation, something called access concentration, they may enter the first jhana, now called the first vipassana jhana, which is in some ways the same for both concentration practice and insight practice at the beginning. However, as they have been practicing insight meditation, they are not trying to solidify this state, but are trying to penetrate the three illusions by understanding the three characteristics. They have been trying to sort out with mindfulness what is body and what is mind, and when each is and isn't there. They have been trying to be clear about the actual sensations that make up their world, just as they are. They have been trying to directly understand the three characteristics moment to moment in whatever sensations arise, be it in a restricted area of space, such as the area of the sensations of breathing, a moving area of space, body scanning practices, in the whole of their world as is done in choiceless awareness practices, using some other technique or object, or just by being alive and paying attention. Thus, this first stage has a different quality to it from that of concentration practice, and they attain to direct and clear perception of the first knowledge of 1. Mind and Body. There is this sudden shift, and mental phenomena shift out away from the illusory sense of the watcher, and are just out there in the world with the sensations of the other five sense doors. This is an important insight, as it shows us clearly and directly that we are not our mind or our body. It is also a really nice, clear, and unitive feeling state. It really is still more state-like than stage-like, and people can try to hold on to it just as with the first jhana and get stuck. Reality can seem just a bit more brilliant the first time one chances into mind and body. We may feel more alive and connected to the world. For some, it may hit with unusual force, filling them with a great sense of unity or universal consciousness. For others, it may not seem very profound. With the sensate experience of both mental and physical phenomena being clearly observable, the relationships and interactions between the two begin to become obvious. What is meant by the dualistic split is very obvious during this stage. Somewhere around the first stage, either just before it or shortly after it, there may arise odd job pains on one side, throat tensions, and some other such unpleasant physical occurrences. Regardless, it soon becomes easy to see that each sensation is followed by the crude mental impression of it, and that intentions precede actions and thoughts. Thus we come to, number two, cause and effect. In this stage, the relationships between mental and physical phenomena become very clear and sometimes ratchet-like. The joy and wonder of mind and body have left, and now the interactions between the mind and body become somewhat mechanical-seeming. Motions such as walking or the breath may begin to get jerky, as there is the intention and the motion, the sensation and the mental impression of it, the cause and the effect all occurring in a way which can seem sort of tight and robot-like. You note the breath moves just a bit. You stop noting, the breath stops. You note quickly, the breath jerks quickly. You note slowly, the breath follows. Some will stop noting quickly or stop noting at all, thinking that they are messing up the breath. The advice here is as before. Note quickly and don't worry about what the breath does. Remember how I recommended trying to experience one to ten sensations per second consistently, noting which were mental and which were physical? 
At this stage, the meditator is finally able to do this with a fair degree of skill, confidence, and consistency. Those with stronger concentration tendencies or bent toward such things may notice thoughts and perhaps even visions of insight into cause and effect on a macroscopic scale, where past action or circumstances led to various consequences. Some event led to some rebirth. Some previous life led to something today and in general may get a sense that they are able to intuit aspects of the workings of karma in a way they did not before. As the meditator becomes more clear about the beginnings and endings of each of these, about the irritation caused by this jerkiness and about the fact that all of this seems to be happening fairly on its own, they come to directly perceive for themselves the three characteristics.